0: Arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, remember that's uh, Samuel's stomping grounds, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go. Go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he's a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone. There's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel when a man went to inquire of God he said come let us go to the seer for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant well said come let us go. So they went to the city of God where the man of God was or the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city there they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, "Is the seer here?" They answered, "He is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you'll find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now, go up for you will meet him immediately." So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out towards them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come. To me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall govern my people. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we don't deserve to be able to gather in your presence this morning at all. This is a gift. This is a privilege, a high privilege, and you've made it possible, Father. You've brought all these people together. You've uh, allowed us to live in a land where we are free to do so. You have sent someone to each one of us to share the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ with us so that we would have uh, knowledge of what you have done for us in Christ. You have. Uh, awakened our hearts to see the beauty of Christ and to understand the truth of the gospel and to believe, Lord, it's all by your grace and your mercy. Lord, today as we examine this text, I pray that you would help us to see that the mundane details of our lives, the, even the painful circumstances we all face, they're actually under your control. And they're part of a good plan A plan that we don't always understand, but one that ultimately will bring you praise and glory in the new creation. So, Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to understand that for our individual circumstances today. Lord, before we examine this text, I also want to lift up those who are in pain, those who are grieving today. We think especially of Bobby Seaman and the entire Seaman family as they uh, share in grief today for the loss of Terry. I pray that you would comfort Bobby and and that you would uh, just pour out your peace into her heart. Uh, I pray uh, that you would do the same for any who are here today and are bruised. Lord, we know that you have compassion toward the weak and toward the hurting, and so I pray that you would show that compassion, that mercy, and that grace to all of us this morning. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. One day, a normal day, in the late 1970s, a normal guy from a very normal Philadelphia suburb went to his normal job and began working with a very normal young woman who grew up just a few miles away. He did the normal thing. He asked her out on a date. But the series of events that would follow, from my perspective, are anything but normal. Because that normal request led to something a little different. The young woman invited the young man to church with her family, a little Baptist church in Bucks County. And there, in that little church, that normal young man heard a message that changed his life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He heard that message and when he heard it, the the clear message of the good news that he could know that he was right with God because of the completed work of Jesus Christ, his heart was changed and he believed. And later, as you might have guessed, that young man married that young woman and they became my father and mother, a story that in many ways is normal, so normal, in fact, that I don't know a lot of details about it. I don't know the exact date that they met. I don't know the text from which the preacher preached that first Sunday. But it was through those mundane, very normal circumstances I came into existence and first came to understand the gospel myself, a message I aim to preach to others and I trust has an impact on all of you. See, life is filled with mundane moments. And the truth is that those mundane moments are often punctuated by pain. The older you are, the more uh, you know this to be true, but hidden behind those moments is a person who works all things for the good of his children. Theologians call this the sovereignty or the providence of God. What they mean is that in the mix of the mundane and the precious And the confusing and the exhilarating and the painful circumstances that follow us around. The day will come when we will see that he ruled over them all and allowed every single one of those circumstances for a good reason. A reason we can never comprehend on this side of eternity. And all those moments and our memories of them will be occasions for praise and thanksgiving for the awesome and the indescribable wisdom and the mercy of our Heavenly Father. God rules over all things. He is in charge. We may not always be able to understand that. We may not always be able to discern his rationale. We, we, but we can rest in that reality. It's this rule... This meticulous, merciful providence that we see on display in 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10 this morning. The people have asked for a king. Chapter 8 makes clear that the reason they did so is because they actually rejected the rule and reign of God. And God chooses to warn them, but to let them make their own decision. And what we're going to see is that God fulfills the request by providing this person named Saul. Yes, he is a king like the nations. He's the king that they asked for. But it is not out of spite that God gives him to them. It's actually out of mercy and kindness that he does so. In fact, this is really the big idea behind all of chapters 9 and 10. When it comes to God's rule over his people, his loyal love, his mercy, his compassion ensures that he leaves nothing to chance. His mercy, his commitment to his covenant people leads him to direct the course of events in keeping with his kind and gracious saving purposes. Now, I didn't read the entirety of our text today for the sake of time. Uh, basically, there are three episodes recounted across these two chapters. In the first episode, we're introduced to a man named Saul. He's an impressive young man. Uh, he's going on a quest to... to uh, Find and recover some lost donkeys, but he ends up at the doorstep of Samuel, the aging prophet and judge of Israel, who ends up anointing him as the first king of the nation of Israel. You might call this first episode the completion of Saul's anointing, and it's recounted for us in chapter 9, verse 1 through chapter 10, verse 1. And then in the second episode, Samuel gives Saul like an an elaborate series of signs that are going to help him to know for sure that he really is the anointed king. And these signs come to pass, and the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul, just just like he used to do in the book of Judges, uh, with the judges. And and so uh, the second episode we might call the confirmation of Saul's anointing, and that appears for us in chapter 10, verses 2 through 16. And then Samuel once again gathers the children of Israel in a third episode in the city of Mizpah. And he reminds them that they had asked for a king. And then he presents Saul to the people after this awkward moment uh, that was caused by Saul's decision not to wave at everybody from Air Force One, but to wait for everybody at the baggage claim. Uh, So we could call this third episode the communication of Saul's anointing. And that's recounted for us in chapter 10, verses 17 through 25. But instead of this morning kind of looking at each one of these episodes individually, what I'd like to do, since this is such a pivotal moment in, in the uh, storyline of Scripture, what I'd like for us to do is to think about how the rule and the reign of God plays itself out in these events on multiple levels, three levels to be exact. Uh, first of all, there's the kind of the high-level sal- uh, salvation history level. Secondly, we're, we'll talk about the way the reign of God works in Saul's life as an individual And then in the third place, we'll see how Saul functions in the larger story of 1 Samuel as the king that they asked for. So, with that being said, let's turn our attention now to uh, the reign of God in salvation history. The reign of God in salvation history. Think with me about how important these events are to the progress of salvation of God's saving work in the world. I mean, every passage of Scripture, every sentence of the Bible, every word of the Bible is really important. It's critical. It's necessary. God wants it to be there. It wouldn't be there if it wasn't. But there are some passages of Scripture that describe pivotal, game-changing dynamics in the history of the work of God. And this is one of those types of passages. For the first time... God's covenant people are, are about to be ruled by a divinely appointed human king. That's a big deal. That's a major shift. That's huge. Yes, it might have come about in connection with the unfaithful request of the people of God, but it has had, it's actually been God's plan all along. I mean, think with me back to the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. God creates man in his image. Uh, he he creates Adam and Eve, and what is the first thing that God does? It says that God blessed them, and he said to them, and he gave them some commands. He said, be fruitful and multiply, and then what does he say? I want you to have dominion over the birds and the the beasts and the, the fish in the sea. I want you to subdue the earth and have dominion over the rest of creation. Think about that. So much of our lives nowadays is tied up in in solving problems, dealing with the problems of life, just trying to get through difficulty. But take all that away. Imagine that there aren't any difficulties, that there aren't any problems. Before there are any problems, what would you say is the role of human beings in the world? Well, according to the Bible, according to the book of Genesis... God wanted Adam to be a sort of king ruling over all things, and he starts out really well. You go to Genesis chapter 2, and what is, what is Adam doing? He's naming all the creatures. He names the fish, and he names the birds, he names the beasts of the field. And what does that mean? It means he has, the, he, he has the prerogative to name these things because he actually is in charge of all these things. That's what he's doing. He's exercising dominion over creation. And, of course, he doesn't end up doing a very good job for very long. Instead of Adam providing for his wife and together ruling over creation, an animal sets the agenda. Eve listens to a snake, and Adam is just last in line. He follows suit. And his failure as king sets the world on a crash course toward destruction, but God doesn't give up his plans to rule the earth through a human regent. That's been his plan all along. Fast forward in the book of Genesis to a man named Abraham. Again, not technically a king, but in Genesis 12 we're told that Abraham is going to become a great nation who would occupy a great land and that nation is going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And then later we're told when Abraham's nephew is kidnapped from his city by five kings, this massive coalition of, of kings in the ancient Near East, Abraham takes his band of, of uh, servants and he rides out to retrieve them and he ends up conquering five kings in battle. And God tells them directly in Genesis 17, kings will come from you. You know the story. It takes several centuries, but Abraham's family is a mighty nation. Uh, after a while, God calls them a kingdom in Exodus chapter 19. Moses leads them out of Egypt, and they walk right up to the edge of the promised land. Moses himself is gonna give specific instruction about the way an Israelite king would need to rule, but it's actually a greedy prophet by the name of Balaam who has the most to say about the coming king. His spirit-inspired words leave the enemies of God's people quaking in their sandals. This is what Balaam has to say in Numbers chapter 24. He says, Israel's king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So what that means for us, folks, is that God's people, anybody who knew the Bible, the the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that's the Bible that they carried around, Anyone who knew that would have expected that at some point, God was going to work on behalf of his people to provide a human king to rule his people and in this way to bless all the peoples of the earth. This was God's plan from the very beginning. And here in 1 Samuel 9 and 10, it's finally happening. And the way our writer presents it sort of plays this up. The fact that Saul, is an, he's anointed to this special role as a leader among God's covenant people. Uh, if you've read these chapters the last several days you may have noticed the parallels between Saul's experience when he is tapped to become the next king and Moses' experience of being called to lead the people of God. I mean, think about it. Uh, Just like Moses, Saul goes on a journey that requires him to get directions from a group of women at a well. Just like Moses, when Saul is honored with the privilege of prominence, he responds with this sort of false humility. Oh, no, 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 I'm just a nobody. Don't pick me. Just like Moses, Saul is offered divinely ordained signs that confirm for him that he himself is being commissioned as the covenant head of the people of God. Go back and read it for yourself. I mean, the parallels between uh, 1 Samuel 9 and 10 and Genesis, or I'm sorry, Exodus 2 and 3 are striking. So here's, here's what the significance of that. What our author is telling us is something like this He's saying, hey, everybody, pay attention. God is doing something big with Saul. God is doing something like Moses level big. This is a huge thing, a huge historical moment. You say, Jake, I get what you're saying, but what is the point? What does that have to do with me today? Here's the point I would make to you do not make the mistake of thinking that all of the things that are happening in our world today are random meaningless, or out of control. Not true. The history of the world is not a sequence of unrelated events that we weave into an artificial narrative, nor is it the story of the never-ending push and pull between the mighty and the weak. No, the events of this world constitute a grand story, not a made-up story that's, that's fictional, but a true story, and the one who is writing this story is God himself. And it seems as if so many of the things in our, that our world has faced over the last several years, so many of the things that we know our kids are going to face in the years to come, are like pointless, are based on the whims of wicked people. But friends, it's not true. We are scrambling, we are clawing our way back to a place, we just can't help ourselves, where we feel like we are in control again, and managing the risk, and looking and planning for what's ahead, and and it's not working and we're finally i think some of us getting to the point where we are beginning to learn that it's just not going to happen and that terrifies us because we want to be in control we don't know what the markets are going to do we don't know what the government is going to do we don't know what putin is going to do we can guess sometimes we'll be right most of the time we'll be wrong And when I look at the changes that have taken place in my life since uh, since I was a kid and how they've gotten faster and more dramatic with each passing year, and then I think about my own kids and the kind of changes that they're going to face that we don't know what they are, I'm overwhelmed by the reality that we just can't see what's coming. We don't have control. But what we don't need to do is to reach the conclusion that it's all out of control. No, someone does have control. Just because I can't control my circumstances, just because I can't control my future, that doesn't mean that God can't control it. God is in control. No, He's ruling and reigning over the course of human history, and you better be glad He is. We think it would be better if we were in charge. Not true. It is much better that God is in charge. Because his sovereign providence over the story of the world is driven by his good and righteous and merciful character. It's driven by his desire to see men and women come to faith and experience his everlasting joy and love. Much better to trust him than to take the steering wheel ourselves. In times of uncertainty, like the times that we're living in, I hear Many Bible-believing people begin to get very pessimistic about the future, very focused on the bad things that are coming. And listen, it's important that we are ready, that we are prepared to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow Jesus Christ, no matter how hard it might be. But as you're wringing your hands about whether this or that headline is the four horsemen of the apocalypse, just remember, this is important, Just remember that the same God who is going to make his enemies into a feast for every detestable bird, according to the book of Revelation, is the God who tenderly invites us to enjoy fellowship with him for all of eternity because he loves us and not because of anything he finds in us. Instead of worrying about whether your smartphone or the barcode on the cereal box is the mark of the beast, In all seriousness, remind yourself that the person who is going to win in the end loves you and has staked his reputation on his willingness to keep his commitments to his covenant people. He rules and reigns over the course of human history. So be confident. Be joyful. Be busy in the Lord's work. Stop it with the doom and gloom. Live in hope. Give others hope in Christ. Okay, let's move on to our second layer. When we turn our attention to Saul as an individual, we see not only the reign of God in salvation history, but secondly, the reign of God in the mundane details of everyday life. The reign of God in the mundane details of everyday life. Notice all the detail that is included about Saul's quest Chasing after donkeys. You ever find yourself chasing after donkeys? You know what I mean? I'm sure those donkeys were worth more to Saul's dad than they would be to us, but still. I mean, you can see it in your mind's eye. Here's Saul. It's like a montage from a movie. Saul and his buddy are clip-clopping around the countryside and going after the donkeys. They go through cool, no donkeys. Now they're in Garner, no donkeys. Then they end up in Mineral State Park, No donkeys. Finally, they're in Palo County. Maybe there's somebody here that can help us find our donkeys. Isn't there someone around that we could talk to? And the the servant just happens to have some money to give the prophet. Saul kind of gives in, even though he's about had it with these animals. Seems like a lot of unnecessary random detail. None of it really comes into perspective, except when we get to verse 15. This is where we get a flashback of, of God's message to Samuel. Think about what God said to Samuel. I am going to send you a man. Pastor and author Dale Ralph Davis calls verses 15 through 17 an intrusion. And if you think about it, that's exactly what they are. If you were to read the whole story and take those three verses out of the Bible, those verses that describe when God told Samuel what was about to happen, if you just take them right out of the, uh, the narrative... The whole thing would fit together. They're they're an intrusion and it's on purpose. They intrude into the story to let us know that even in the mundane everyday movements of Saul's life where he seems just totally aimless, there is a hidden reality that reveals the work and the character of God. Saul says, I guess I'll go see the prophet. God says, I'm going to send you a man. Saul had no idea he was being sent. He was out looking for donkeys, but God's mercy and loyal love toward his people drives him to orchestrate a meeting between the kingmaker and a future king. Did you hear what he said? He said, I've seen my people and their cry has come to me. God wants to rule and reign his people even in the mundane circumstances of uh, of their lives. And so his mercy, his loyal love is what drives him to leave nothing to chance. Say, Jake, that might make sense if I were a king, if I were somebody important, somebody that's talked about in the Bible. But God doesn't care about the finer details of my life. It's so random. No, it's not just kings. It's all of us. And I know it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that God could pay attention to all these different details and all the ways that they flow out into the circumstances of our lives. But that's because he's God and we're not. Dr. Bill T. Arnold, in his excellent commentary on First and Second Samuel, Retells a, a true story first published in the 1949 edition of Reader's Digest, and I'd like to read it for you. He says, on January 10th, 1948, just over two years after the conclusion of World War II, Marcel Sternberger got on a train in the Brooklyn subway he had never been on before. He normally took a different line, but he had changed his schedule in order to visit a sick friend that morning and was now boarding a noon train to get to work. The train was full. But just as he stepped in, one man jumped up, ran off, realizing he was about to miss his station. Sternberger quickly took the seat and sat down. Next to him was a man reading a Hungarian newspaper. Sternberger had been born in Hungary, and though he would not normally strike up a conversation with strangers in the subway, he felt compelled to say something. He looked over the man's shoulder and said in Hungarian, I hope you don't mind if I glance at your paper. The man was surprised to be addressed in his native language, and during the half-hour ride to town, they became acquainted. Sternberger's companion voluntarily shared his tragic story. His name was Paskin, and he had been a law student when the war started. He was eventually put into a labor battalion and sent to Ukraine. Later, he was captured by the Russians and put to work burying the German dead. After the war... He covered hundreds of miles on foot, returned to his home in Debrecen, Hungary, and discovered his entire family gone. Finally, he located old friends in Debrecen who had survived the war, and they sadly informed him his entire family was dead. The Nazis had taken them and his wife to Auschwitz, where they were all presumably killed in the gas chambers. Stunned by the news, the man fled Hungary and emigrated to the United States in October 1947. 1947. As Sternberger listened, the story seemed somehow familiar. Suddenly he remembered why. He had recently met a young woman at the home of friends who had also been from Debrecen. She had been taken to Auschwitz, but was then transferred to work in a German munitions factory. All her relatives had been killed in the gas chambers. After she had been liberated by the Americans, she was brought to New York in the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Sternberger thought it was impossible that there could be a connection between these two people. But when he reached his station, he stayed on the train with his new friend. He asked as casually as possible, Is your first name Bela? The man went pale as he said, Yes. How did you know? Sternberger fumbled for his address book as he asked, Was your wife's name Maria? Looking as though he might faint, Paskin said, Yes, yes! Sternberger suggested they get off at at the next station without explaining why. He took Paskin to a nearby phone booth. While Paskin stood there like a man in a trance, Sternberger dialed the number, and after a long delay, he had Maria Paskin on the line. He reminded her of their recent chance meeting. She remembered him. Without explaining why, he asked Maria where she had lived in Debrecen before the war, and she told him the address. Sternberger turned to Bala and he said, Did you live on such and such a street? Yes, Bela exclaimed, as he turned white as a sheet and trembled. Sternberger handed Bela the phone, saying, Here, take this telephone and talk to your wife. The story concludes, and again, this is Reader's Digest, 1949. Skeptical persons would no doubt attribute the events of that memorable afternoon to mere chance. But was it chance that made Sternberger suddenly decide to visit his sick friend and hence take a subway line that he had never been on before? Was it chance that caused the man sitting by the door of the car to rush out just as Sternberger came in? Was it chance that caused Bela Paskin to be sitting beside Sternberger reading a Hungarian newspaper? Was it chance? Or did God ride the Brooklyn subway that afternoon? Friends, I think we all know the answer, don't we? See, whether it's the Brooklyn subway or the, the trails crisscrossing the hill country of the land of Israel, or Highway 180 in Mineral Wells. God is there, and God is working in ways we cannot comprehend to save and to protect the people he treasures, even in the mundane details of everyday life. I've heard their cry, he says. So he directs the course of mundane, everyday details. You know, I look out across this room, And I see people that I know well, and a lot of you are just chasing donkeys right now. And you don't want to be, but you you are, and you have to. And you wish there was some way out of it. And you you think your your work is worthless, and your life is aimless. And for some of you, it's it's like I've turned into this one lane, uh, one way, alleyway, and I'm going the wrong way, and I want to back out, but I can't go backwards, and I can't go forwards, and I'm stuck, and I don't know where to go. See, I don't want to change diapers and and wash dishes anymore. I don't want to go to work and just collect a paycheck at that place anymore. Like, give me something more meaningful. Give me something more significant to do. But I just want to urge you to be patient, with the hidden rule of God in the mundane, everyday circumstances of life because while you're wandering, God is working and his work is a work of mercy and compassion. He is not working to kind of make fun of you or mess with you. He is working to show you mercy. Say, it's been too long. I want to turn back, but let me just remind you something. When he shows you what he's been doing with this season of your life and you're looking back, it won't seem like as long as as it seems right now. It always seems longer when you're in the middle of it, so wait on the Lord. Depend on his mercies, his loyal love to his people, and don't give up. Don't abandon what God has called you to do because it's lost its luster. Stay the course. We've seen God's rule, his sovereign providence at work in salvation history. We've seen it in the mundane details of everyday life, but... Now, uh, let's look at our third layer. Uh, Let's think about what this passage says about the nature of King Saul's coming regime. I call this the reign of God in contrast to appearances. The reign of God in contrast to appearances. If you've read these chapters and you understand what's come before and what's coming after, you might feel a sort of uneasy tension about King Saul. Uh, In biblical narrative, the first, Mention of a character is always important to understanding the role that that person is going to play in the coming events. And notice that there's a sort of irony at play uh, in the way that Saul is presented. In the beginning of chapter nine, we're told that Saul has this impressive pedigree as the son of a wealthy landowner in a prominent tribe in central Israel. Not only that, he's a handsome man, the most handsome. Like he he won the male beauty contest or something like that. I'm not sure how we know that, but he, he's, he's really tall, and then if you fast forward to the end of chapter 10, when Samuel presents Saul to all the people, he, he brings that same detail out. He says, do you see who, him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. Saul could have started as, as quarterback for Gibeah High School. I don't know if they had football back then. But he was this all-star, all-Israel, muscular, golden boy that everyone was drawn to. In an age where the value of a king depended on his ability to go out in front of his people in battle, this was really important to them. This was a big deal. They didn't want a puny king. They wanted a king who could draw a bow and wield a sword and Saul fit the bill. If they were after status like we saw last week, then, then Saul was their man. He was perfect. All the other nations would see King Saul and they would think, wow, did you see Israel's king? Impressive. I don't want to mess with that guy. Certainly was the king they asked for. But then when you look at some of the other things we read about Saul, we're left with mixed feelings. And those feelings, at least in these chapters, they're like little gray clouds in the distant horizon. Like you're, you're planning a picnic, and you've got the blanket and the basket, and you're ready to go, and you picked a perfect spot. And before you lay out that blanket, you look over into the distance, and you see the clouds, and you think, wait a second. Before I lay out this spread, I want to find out what those clouds are going to do. And that's the way it is with Saul. The first words out of Saul's mouth are him trying to turn back and give up. In fact, as we read through this narrative, we're going to see that Saul, he's always searching and never finding what he's looking for because he's always just in the wrong place or going about it in the wrong way. He gets to the city uh, where Samuel lives after a servant sells him on the idea and The townspeople have to sort of spell it out for him. When he finally meets Samuel, he doesn't even know it's him. It's like he's just clueless. So Saul's going to get a real chance to do this right. We're going to see that in the weeks to come. Uh, We're going to see he starts out, he does some good things early on. But these little things that in these chapters make us a little bit nervous, they're going to blow up in a huge way in the years to come. And here's what that tells me. What that tells me is that God wants us to learn something. We look at what we can see. I mean, that's all we can see, right? That's all we can do. We look at the outward appearance. We look at w- what we can see. We, we get excited about people who are impressive, people who look good, who look like they would be able to do the job. We love to be, we love to follow what is outwardly impressive and handsome and muscular. Think about the billions of dollars we spend on Uh, going to the gym, or wearing makeup, or dyeing our hair. But the children of Israel are going to learn that a king who's nice to look at is not necessarily the king who needs to be in charge. God rules and reigns in the world. He is the sovereign king over his people, and his mercy drives him to leave nothing to chance. But I want you to know and understand that God's rule and reign so often operates in contrast to what we can see. Uh, you know, I cannot help but think about our own search for leaders here at Indian Creek. You know, wh- wh- whoever they might be elders, deacons, teachers, a new youth pastor. You know the temptation? Hey, look at that guy. He's well dressed, he's good looking, physically fit, nice smile, great personality. He's a winner. He'll take us to the next level. Wait a second, not so fast. Just because he took his team to the championship doesn't mean he's God's man for Indian Creek. Stay focused on what is important. Jake, listen, I don't care about what he looks like. I'm not that shallow. I just know that people out there in the community, they're not going to follow somebody who isn't impressive. Okay, so what you're saying is you're trusting a man's outward appearance to do the work of the Holy Spirit. The question is, what is his heart like before the Lord? So if we end up having, listen, if we do end up having a candidate come in for this position, and he's got big biceps and and beautiful hair, you know, and perfect skin or something like that, don't hold it against him. I don't know. But don't get distracted by it either. It's not necessarily what we need. You remember the passage Sarah read earlier in the service. Think about that perfect king. Who is the perfect king that we could have? The perfect ruler. Is he somebody that's impressive to look at? No, what did Isaiah say? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. King Jesus didn't stand head and shoulders above the rest. He wasn't impressive or beautiful. His appearance wasn't anything to get excited about and yet he rules and reigns with perfect mercy. Listen, if you're here... And you're not a Christian, let me make something clear. We were made to be led. God built this into creation. We were made to be led by a human king that represents our Heavenly Father perfectly. We need that. You need that. But if you are looking, you you need a leader, is what I'm saying. But if you're looking for someone who is impressive by the standards of the world, then King Jesus isn't going to capture your affections. And what I'm telling you is that you're looking in the wrong place. We'll see that in Saul's life. You're going to find yourself enamored with the impressive, and it will destroy your soul. But if you lay aside your desire for prestige, for influence, for importance, for status, if you humble yourself and call out to King Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will find that there is beauty in his cross, that there is glory in his sufferings, because those sufferings, those nails, those strikes of the whip, they are the things that paid for our forgiveness and our redemption. Do we remember that today? Do we remember that God's rule and reign often works contrary to appearance? uh, appearance? How easily we forget. We want a program that's slick and impressive. We want to see immediate, visible results. But, But folks, when we focus on what God warns us to ignore, we're going to miss out on what God really has for us. May it never be at Indian Creek. May it never be that a desire for bells and whistles drives our Every decision as a church. May it never be that we deceive ourselves into thinking that if we could impress the world with our music and our teaching and our culture and our buildings, that somehow that will overcome their objections to Christianity. But wait a second, does it overcome the fact that their sin needs to be paid for? I'd rather just entrust it to King Jesus, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, born in a manger, mangled on a cross. I need a king, but the king I need is not the guy who looks good. It's the God who is good. Do you need hope today? Today, do you need hope? Don't look for it in the guy who has a, a nice tan and the muscles and he's got millions of followers. No, look at the lowly. I'm serious. Look at the people who are suffering the people who still have hope, who still light up with joy in Jesus, even though they're going through the worst circumstances you can imagine. Look at that. You will see what drives real hope. That's our King Jesus. He rules, he reigns in the course of human history. He rules and he reigns in the mundane, mundane details of everyday life. He rules and he reigns in contrast to appearances. He leads his people and it is his mercy that dictates that he leaves nothing to chance. The question is simply, have you bowed the knee to the real king? Have you recognized his sovereign providence when you watch the news? When you're stuck searching for donkeys, when you're stuck in the mundane details of everyday life? How about when, uh, have you come to a place when you're no longer concerned with the outward appearance, but you've committed to trusting the one who was despised and rejected by men? Let's let him be our king. Let's bow to him. Would you pray with me now? Father, I want to thank you for this wonderful church and the testimony of so many dozens who sit quietly and humbly and don't draw attention to themselves, but if we watch closely, we see that though there may seem to be nothing important to look at, there is a lesson to learn that you are in charge that you bring hope, that you show mercy, and that that mercy works itself out by your sovereign and wise hand, even when things are difficult, even when life is mundane. And And you do that even in contrast to the things that we think are going to get the job done. Father, I pray that you would show us, expose us the ways in which we've been enamored with that which is impressive. And I pray that you would point our hearts by faith to you and to your son, Jesus Christ, who didn't impress a lot of people when he was walking this earth, but who has absolutely changed millions. I pray that that change would take place in hearts today as we respond to your word. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.